Hey guys, before we get to the show, quick announcement. We are enrolling for The Strenuous Life right now. If you want to sign up, head over to strenuouslife.co. The Strenuous Life is our online platform that helps you put into action all the things we've talked about on the AOM podcast and written about on artofmanliness.com. We do that with badges. We have daily check-ins for physical activity. We provide weekly challenges. They're going to push you outside of your comfort zone, physically, mentally, socially. Check it out. Hope to see you there. Strenuouslife.co. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Frederick Nietzsche is famous for espousing a philosophy that may be a help in wrestling with existential angst and finding meaning in life. My guest would say that Nietzsche's philosophy may also be useful for figuring out something else, how to have a healthy relationship with modern technology. His name is Nate Anderson, and he's the author of In Emergency, Break Glass, what Nietzsche can teach us about joyful living in a tech-saturated world. Today in the show, Nate, who's a deputy editor at the website Ars Technica, shares how someone who grew up loving technology and has spent his career writing about it reached a point where he felt disenchanted with his effects on his life and why he turned to the philosophy of Frederick Nietzsche for insights on how to approach tech more fruitfully. We then turn to the way tech has made life too safe, easy, and frictionless, and how Nietzschean goals, asceticism, and creative self-overcoming exertion can help us find deeper fulfillment. Nate unpacks four Nietzsche-inspired guidelines for information consumption, the importance of the physical body and thinking and feeling, and our need to embrace greater Dionysian energy and perhaps live a bit more dangerously. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash breakglass. Nate Anderson, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you got a new book out called In Emergency, Break Glass, What Nietzsche Can Teach Us About Joyful Living in a Tech-Saturated World. And I was saying earlier before we get on, you combine two of my favorite things, the philosophy of Frederick Nietzsche and thinking about how our digital technology can be incorporated in our life in a, in a meaningful way. You start off this book talking about, you reached a point in your life where technology digital technology seemed to become disenchanted. It felt like it was making your life small, which is interesting because you've made a career writing about digital technology. I mean, you're, you're a deputy editor at Ars Technica, which is a digital news tech site. So walk us through the process. How did a, a, a guy who has you know, spent his life working with digital technology, writing about it, thinking about it, kind of be like, ah, I'm getting kind of tired of this? Yeah, I mean, the book comes from a place of real love for technology. When I was a kid, I'm from the generation where my first computers were magical, but very difficult devices. I mean, we're talking, you had to type in programs out of magazines if you wanted cool stuff to run. So these devices were all about tinkering, about coding, so much learning and creativity required even to get your computer to do something. That, for me, was a really magical experience as a kid. As I grew up, as we got you know, more digital technology in our lives, as smartphones and the internet came in, I felt a real shift that I think a lot of people have felt to where technology becomes about consumption and about interruption. If you think in, in your life how much of your time with technology might be taken up by Netflix and Spotify, or how many times your train of thought is interrupted during the day by texts, emails, notifications, pings on some kind of device. That was a real shift from what I experienced as a kid. In the words of the techies, things got frictionless. That's That's been a hot 
description of what people have been trying to do for years now, and they've largely succeeded. You know, unlike in the old days where everything was hard, things now are engineered to attract and addict. And I think of it a bit like the difference between baking your own cookies versus buying them from the store. Cookies are never going to be super healthy for you to consume in large quantities. But if you've got to do the work of making a batch of cookies, making the dough, baking them for 20 minutes, you're not likely to stuff your face with cookies all the time every day. When you can just add them to your shopping cart, they're pre-made, they're right there, they're ready to go, it's much easier to engage in unhealthy behaviors. I feel like the same way about technology. As it became frictionless, as it became easier, as companies really began pushing consumption, as the tech itself began to interrupt our lives in a bid to you know, lure our attention, that it became somewhat unhealthy, at least for me. So I just found that so much of my attention, which is to say my life, was going toward these devices, toward these glass screens. It was safe. It was easy. It was entertaining. But I guess it all felt somewhat motionless. And given that life itself is motion, things began to feel perhaps a bit lifeless. Okay, so you're feeling lifeless thanks to the way digital technology has directed us towards more frictionless living. How did the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche end up as your guide on how to navigate this frictionless, tech-saturated world? Uh, Yes, sort of an unusual choice there. But my path in college, I majored in philosophy and had a real love for that sort of thinking and reading and learning. And I'd really let that go for quite a while. But in my, in my bid to sort of remedy some of these problems, I turned back to some of that. And Nietzsche was one of those figures who, you know, you always hear about. You hear about him today. He's, he's the most memeable of the philosophers. He's a great quote machine. And so I went to his work because I'd never studied it much. And what I found there was someone who was not advocating for life that was either safe or easy. He was passionate about finding or creating meaning in life, about striving in and against reality, not becoming detached from the world or experiencing at a remove through screens and lenses, but about you know struggling to do new and creative things in yourself and in the world. So his work hit me hard, in part because it was so readable compared to every other German philosopher I've ever read. And I just read all of it. And It occurred to me as I was working through all this material that Nietzsche was a good pairing with this tech world where I've been working and and thinking in. It's a world where everyone says they want to change the world. That's the common mantra for everyone who, you know, founds a startup company these days. But I looked around and saw that many of them seemed more interested in an IPO or selling advertising. This wasn't exactly the change the world creative struggle that I was looking for and that Nietzsche talked about. So I thought they're interesting to put Nietzsche's voice into this conversation with the tech world. But I guess I do want to be clear that, you know, I don't take Nietzsche as my guide. I think anybody who knows enough about Nietzsche knows that he had some pretty controversial opinions and ways of expressing himself that in some cases are unhelpful. And I look at him more as someone to think with 
rather than you know someone to follow or to become a disciple of. Well, and he would actually he would actually agree with you on that approach. He actually never wanted disciples. He wanted fellow thinkers with him. He did, right, right. I, I've got a great quote here from him that was in his autobiography. He says, I'm no man, I'm dynamite. I want no believers. I never speak to the masses. I have a terrible fear that one day I will be pronounced holy. I do not want to be a holy man. And I, I think that's right. And he really tells people to take what he's saying, but to apply it to their own lives in their own ways and not to make him their guru. So let's talk about Nietzsche's idea of the good life. I think you hit on it a little bit. The idea of the good life that he had was striving, uh, having a goal, living with passion, not a life of ease, right? He believed in a kind of strenuous life. Things should be hard. That's where you find meaning. How does Nietzsche's idea of a flourishing life differ from the flourishing life that our digital technology offers? Right. So I think you put your finger on it, that it's about struggle and creative exertion. I don't think that has to mean for Nietzsche that life is miserable or that we're always struggling in the sense of being at war, but we're striving to do creative and interesting things in ourselves and in the worlds around us to overcome our human limitations and, and press forward. That's what he's talking about. He refers to this as being the ubermensch, the overperson, the person who kind of transcends our humanity or tries to push the boundaries of it forward. That's what he respected in life. That's what he tried to do. And what he said in contrast was that we just don't want a life where the goal is comfort, ease, and safety. And I think some of this comes out of his own personal biography. He was, he was very ill all of his life. He gave up his tenured professorship as a fairly young man and wandered around Europe with very little money until he went insane. So he did not have a comfortable, easy, or safe life. And I think he looked at people who did and who seemed to value only that. And he looked at himself and he said, this is not an option for me. And if this is what life is about, I've already lost. And so he, he set about looking for different ways to think about it. He calls this in one place, living that way to try to be comfortable, safe, and easy. He calls living the life of the last man. Not really because it ends the human race in a physical sense, because ease, safety, and comfort tend to keep life going because you're safe. But because in a sort of spiritual, moral sense, it's kind of the end of human striving, effort, and ambition, that we've given up on trying to be more that we could be. So that's, that's what Nietzsche calls for is the good life, is this goal of struggling forward. And he has this amazing quote that's what he means by that. So he says, the secret for harvesting from existence, the greatest fruitfulness and the greatest enjoyment is to live dangerously. Build your cities on the slopes of Vesuvius. Send your ships into uncharted seas. Live at war with your peers and yourselves. Be robbers and conquerors. As long as you cannot be rulers and possessors, you seekers of knowledge. So, you know, it's important to note that he, he is talking to seekers of knowledge. He is not calling for people to be jerks or warmongers. But this is the sort of vision of life that he has as the good life. 
And I love, okay, I want to, I think what our digital technology does with this, it encourages this frictionless, easy consumption. I think the type of person that it creates Need, like that last man that Nietzsche describes, it just perfectly encapsulates that. There's a Nietzsche scholar, Robert Solomon, who described the last man as the ultimate couch potato. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the quote about you know the last man and their ethos towards why. This is from Nietzsche. This is from Thus Spoke Zarathustra. It says, we discovered happiness, say the last man, and blink. So I just love that idea, like, they just blink. You know, it's just sort of like, they're not really thinking, they're just kind of just there existing. They think they've got happiness in their comfort, but actually they don't. Yeah, and I I think if you just, if you're talking about digital technology, and if you just look at sort of a physical sense of of what it can do to us, there, there are lots of things it can do and does do in people's lives. But at least in my life, I looked around and found that it was leading me to spend a lot of time sitting on the couch or sitting on a chair, or looking at a screen, right? And and that seemed a very limited range of things to do with my life, with my time, with my attention, and yet so much of it was going into those postures. And that was kind of, for me, a sign, you know, that what Nietzsche is saying about being the ultimate couch potato, like, this works, you can live, you can enjoy yourself, it's fairly undemanding, but there's a hollowness to it. And it just felt like the digital technology I was immersed in, at least I was not using it in ways that were helping me serve life, grow, move forward. And so Nietzsche helped me find new ways of thinking about what I would want from my technology. So Nietzsche, he's he's an existentialist and existentialists are about, all about finding meaning in life. And the the problem that Nietzsche was grappling with is he he saw and he described that in modern life, we killed meaning that was given to us by God, right? So people before modernity ordered their life around this idea that there is God and God provided meaning. Nietzsche said in the 19th century, we killed God with science and whatever. And he said, this is terrible. I, actually, that whole thing, you know, God is dead. Like Nietzsche thought that was actually a bad thing because it, it means people no longer have a meaning in life. And so he said, okay, if we can't look to religion to provide us meaning, we have to create our own meaning. So Nietzsche is all about goals, but he, it was a certain type of goal that Nietzsche had in mind for life. What, what made a, a goal Nietzschean? So like you said, it's all about meaning. And there are some people who think of Nietzsche and brand him with the name of a, a nihilist, someone who just wants to tear everything down. There's no point to existence. I think that's a radical misreading of Nietzsche. His entire existence was about trying to find meaning in a world where he felt like it had collapsed. And that's what he struggled for his entire life. So like you said, for him, he found it in self-created goals. He has a great quote where he says, if we possess our why of life, we can put up with almost any how. And I think you can see that in the life of every sort of revolutionary who's ever lived. You can see it in many artists. You can see it in all sorts of people, including religious people. The goal and and happiness is not always attained by being safe, easy, and comfortable on the couch. It's often gained through struggle, through difficulty, through living in reduced physical circumstances, but with a goal of doing something that you love or that you think will really change the world. So Nietzsche is really in that tradition. And when he says 
we, we need a why of life. These kind of goals he's talking about are, are the sorts of things we've been discussing. He sees them as creative, self-overcoming goals that move us forward. And, and what do we mean by self-overcoming? I mean, if you think of, think of an artist who, who paints a style of picture and it becomes very popular, but you know, most good artists are not content with doing that their entire career. The people who do stop and just keep churning out this thing that's popular and they keep selling over and over with very little variation, you know, we don't always look kindly on that trajectory once they're gone. We say maybe they didn't really have the courage or the interest in kind of moving beyond that. But great artists are always changing and evolving and growing and trying to do something new they haven't done before. That's what Nietzsche's talking about, applying that attitude toward our own lives. And, you know, it does not mean that everyone's trying to be a revolutionary who changes the world in some kind of massive, big picture historical sense. Nietzsche himself didn't try to do anything like that. But he sought the truth. He sought new ways of writing and thinking. And he was always pushing beyond in style and content from what he had done before. I think that's the sort of thing he's calling people to. In your own domain, in your own area of life, don't settle for doing the same thing over and over, for coming home at the end of a workday where you're working for somebody else and you're just reduced to kind of tiredness and you, you have no, no bigger picture things that you struggle for. There's nothing left that you create or that you strive for. So that's what he's calling people to. And if, if people can find that for themselves, the thing that really animates them, that's the why of their life. And then they can put up with all sorts of different hows in terms of how they live, and the circumstances in which they live. Do you think our frictionless digital world offers substitutes for Nietzschean goals that kind of distract us from actually going after those type of goals? I think it can, but I'm not a total pessimist. I think technology can serve these kinds of creative goals. As a writer myself, you know, I found that digital technology has made you know, been hugely productive for me in terms of writing. And I may need to spend more time in front of a screen in order to do kind of creative and interesting things that I want to do. But I think it is too easy because of the engineering that goes into these things that are so designed to capture our attention and usually then to monetize it, that there is often a danger that digital technology today will try and do that to your life and that you'll end up giving it more of your attention than it deserves. So it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, nobody's making you sign up for Facebook or play addictive mobile games or leave all your notifications on so you're constantly being pinged by text message alarms. We've collaborated in allowing that to happen. The technology itself can go in lots of different ways, as long as we're mindful about it and sort of take charge of it instead of letting it take charge of us. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Yeah, so one thing you talk about in the book is that figuring out what your Nietzschean goals are going to be, these existential goals that are going to give you meaning in life, it requires you to listen to your inner voice. But as you make the case, the flood of information that we encounter with our, from our digital devices can drown out that inner voice. Nietzsche, you look to Nietzsche for this. He might have some ideas. Nietzsche wasn't a fan of asceticism. He thought that was too extreme. 
Uh, he didn't like people who just like fasted and wore sackcloths. He thought he thought that was life negating, right? They yeah. were denying life. But you argue there's a type of Nietzschean asceticism we can that can be useful in managing information overload. What does that look like? Right. So he's against these sort of ascetic attitudes when he feels like they're saying no to life. When you're actually trying to limit yourself in the world, you're trying to limit your intake of food, um, et cetera. But just for the purpose of saying that life itself is bad and I want to come as close to death as I can. If that's the attitude, Nietzsche wants nothing to do with it. But there's another kind of restriction and asceticism that he's forced to admit is actually a very good thing. And in fact, is required to live. It's the sort of restriction, the limits, the asceticism that actually serves life and says yes to life. So he's got a great quote where he says, noise murders thought. And I I found that to be true in my life. And so he advocates for learning to say no to many things, including information. You know, as somebody who was himself a professor, he felt the information overload that we experience now in a similar way. He talks about how overwhelmed he felt by history, by books, by libraries, by all that was before him. And this was 130, 140 years ago. So I think things have only gotten worse for us. And what he saw was only an infinite lifespan could truly say yes to everything that's out there, could embrace every book, could watch every movie on Netflix, you know, could read every text message that comes in. We don't have an infinite lifespan. So we can say a no, we can create a boundary line in our existence to rule things out in order to say yes to life live more fully, in order not to be overwhelmed by this information that just piles up all around us. So Nietzsche talks about this in terms of nutrition is a metaphor he comes back to. And in the book, I call this a a slow information diet. So he talks about our need to do four things. First, slow down our acquisition of information. Read more slowly, watch more carefully, listen more carefully in order to pay attention to what's being said or played or performed. And the second thing is to really ruminate on information, reread, rewatch, re-listen, let things sink in, digest them, focus on them in order to turn things into wisdom within our minds and our bodies. Always moving on to something novel may prevent that. The third thing is stop information intake completely at certain times in order to create space for our own thoughts to digest this kind of material, to think about our own way forward. And the fourth thing is maybe we actually need to forget some information so that it doesn't build up around us like garbage, like so that we can clear a mental path through these things that don't serve us in life. This is not the promise, I think it's fair to say, of of digital technology, which has basically become archive everything you know, keep all information, never forget, make it easily accessible to anyone at any time, anywhere. And Nietzsche might say, well, that's great, but at least we as humans have to draw real boundaries around how much of that we're going to spend our lives working with, consuming, listening to, because if we don't, it creates 
anxiety. It prevents us from thinking. It prevents us from hearing our own voice. And so digital technology has got a real role to play in that. And we need to manage information just like we do food. Too much and too little might both kill us. Well, yeah, you, it's, it's an upstream battle because digital technology, the way the you know, media, digital media is organized is that it encourages fast reading and skimming. In fact, you're seeing this trend, mm. I think Axios, the website, they're, they're sort of standardizing this like very skimmable reading format now where it's just like bullet points. And like you're seeing other websites adopt this, this format. You see the digital technology, the algorithms put a premium on novelty. You only see new stuff typically. You never see stuff, you know, gets percolated from the archives from 10 years ago. So you have to actually intentionally decide, you know what, I am going to read slowly. I'm not going to skim. I'm going to, again, not just focus on the new stuff, but really focus on the stuff that's old, that's stood the test of time. Like you have to decide, I'm going to be intentional about that. Yeah. Intentionality is at the core of all this, because if you're not intentional, the people who create all these digital systems, they were intentional and they have a goal and it's to capture your attention, usually through novelty, outrage, you know, things that sort of excite interest and attention. That may not, you know, a steady diet of that where that's mostly what you consume. I think it's pretty clear by now that that is not good for us. So without intentionality, you give yourself over to that. So one thing you like a takeaway from that, read slowly, go ahead and read those long form articles, take your time with it, read an entire book. And then I like the idea that Nietzsche had, like have a library, like that's like four or five books. Think about like if I, if there was the apocalypse and I can only keep four books with me, what would those four books be? And then just read those over and over again throughout your life and just chew on it. Like I like how you ruminate, like you're like a cow chewing on its cud over and over again. Right. So this is sort of the Desert Island books scenario. And yeah, Nietzsche loved this. He said at one point he only had eight authors that he read over and over again, which, you know, was clearly not true. But in his hyperbolic fashion, indicates what he's getting at, that if there are books or authors or albums or movies that have been profoundly meaningful to you, And yet you don't really go back to them as much as you'd really like to because you're always, you know, in search of the new. I think maybe something's being lost there and that maybe we'd gain more by spending more time returning to the things that really have this kind of shaping quality on our lives and really incorporating them into the way we think and see the world and talk. And so that's what Nietzsche's talking about there. Let's talk about Nietzsche's idea of the role of the physical body in a flourishing life. I mean, I think a lot of philosophers, it's all in their head, but Nietzsche said that was the wrong way to look at a flourishing life. What role did the body play in Nietzsche's idea of, uh, of a flourishing, happy life? It's interesting that Nietzsche focuses so much on the physical and on the body and the importance of it, given how ill he was much of his life. And in fact, maybe that's the reason for it, that that health, life, motion seem more precious to someone who was often ill and on his bed. So Nietzsche's big thing is that the body really matters. It, it doesn't just matter as a way to move the mind around, right? The body's not the robot and the brain is like the controller. Everything is integrated. Nietzsche thinks that we think through the body 
and, and the emotions, not just with our reasoning, logical mind. And in fact, he says several times that the body, the emotions, these kind of the passions, the things that are not always logical and rational might be more important to thinking, and here he means broadly processing the world around us, than those pure reasoning, logical minds. He's got this great quote in Twilight of the Idols where he says that only ideas won by walking have any value. And that was something that he lived out in his life. He, he wrote many of his books while going on long walks around Switzerland and Italy with small note cards in which he'd jot down aphorisms and thoughts. He found that was an immense stimulus to, to thought. And that sitting in a room, sitting in front of a typewriter or with a page in front of you and just trying to come up with a book out of your mind, just trying to think without being mobile, without involving the body, didn't work for him. And I, I think that's borne out today by psychology that, that we're seeing that recognizes that there's much more to us than this kind of logical reasoning faculty. And how does our digital technology separate us from our bodies? Well, we, we just talked a bit about, about the posture thing, and I keep coming back to that because I think of the stereotypical, you know, what is somebody with a screen doing? They're often sitting on a couch, sitting on a chair, or they might be walking down a sidewalk, but with their head down. So you're in very sort of constricted positions. You're not out and embracing and even looking at the world. You're perceiving reality increasingly through sheets of glass of different sizes, whether they're phones, tablets, TVs. That's a hugely different experience of life. It's a much more controlled experience of life. We can control online exactly where we go, who we interact with. We can close apps. We can delete emails. We can block people on Twitter. But the world itself is just not quite that pliable. And many times that can be frustrating, but it's also the source of many of the most interesting things that happen to us. It's the source of many of the most serendipitous things that happen to us, things that we didn't expect that we encounter in a world we don't fully control. And so Nietzsche is huge on using the body, thinking with the body, not just treating it as, you know, a lesser adjunct to the mind, that both matter and the kind of technology that would stress one against the other is perhaps not being fully healthy. So if there's a way for us to use our technology in ways that encourage the use of the body and the mind together, that's terrific. But if we find that our technology is pushing us onto the couch and we're spending 18 hours a day staring at a screen of some kind, we might start to suspect there's, there's a problem here. Yeah, there's a, a writer that you quote frequently in the book, and it's, he, we've had him on the podcast before, Matthew Crawford. Yeah. He's written and thought a lot about this. And I love his idea that this idea of embodied cognition, like the way you can really know something is through the body. It's not just the mind. It, it has to be through the body. And he really hits home this idea that one way that we gain knowledge about something, but also about ourselves, like the way we know that we are a self is when we bump up against other selves or other things that are not, that are not us. And I feel like oftentimes online, there isn't that boundary, that hard boundary. And so it, it sometimes you got to get sort of lost 
in this weird digital mass and you, you feel like you know, but or you're learning something, but you really aren't because you're not bumping up against that, that friction in a, in, a, in a physical way sometimes. Yes. Online, you know, if you live your life almost completely online, it can be a good experience socially. I mean, I've worked online for many years. I, I know many of my colleagues very well. We interact digitally quite a bit. But in, in many cases, it leads to a certain kind of solipsism where you're, you're in control, you're sort of gazing at yourself and the things you've chosen to look at. And being in the real world, being with real other people physically just makes that more difficult like in ways that are frustrating, but like you said, in ways that can be really, really fruitful for our development as humans. You know, if, if we think about, you know, embodied cognition can tell us that doing physical things over and over is a way to learn about the world in a really different way than just kind of mental in a way of just typing words on screens. So I play guitar. That requires hundreds of hours of practice, but it's a very, very finely tuned physical discipline of having your fingers know exactly where this fret is, landing on it at exactly the right time that you have to rehearse millions of times. It's that friction against the world, against getting it wrong, refining your results that ultimately train you in these kinds of skills. You cannot do some of these things simply by using a mouse, a screen, a cell phone. There are just limits to the type of thing that you will experience. So Nietzsche had this idea of the Dionysian. This comes from the, the god Dionysus, the wine god Bacchus. And it was all about chaos and chance and risk and everything. And I think we've made the case that our digital technology can eradicate the Dionysian because like, you have control over it, right? You can completely control how you present yourself online, who you interact with. So how do you think we can welcome the Dionysian back in our tech-infused lives? Hmm. Yeah, so this comes from Nietzsche's early book, The Birth of Tragedy, in which he talks about these two Greek gods, Apollo, sun god, who Nietzsche associates with order, reason, rationality, structure, control, and a certain kind of controlled detachment um, from the world that creates and shapes, but maybe doesn't lose itself in the moment. The Dionysian, coming from Dionysus, the god of wine, is in the moment. It's almost orgiastic. It's physical. It's passionate. It's sensual. It's, today we might use the word, mindful. It's not trapped thinking about the past and the future. It is in the present and experiencing the world now. So Nietzsche doesn't say that we all need to become Dionysian. What he says is that our culture has become too Apollonian, that we are too in love with control, order, reason, structure, detachment, and that we need this kind of balance you know, and I think when you pair this up with what technology promises us, it's usually much more Apollonian, not exclusively. But when you think about the promises of technology to give you more control over your smart home, over your health, over your life, over, you know, the map you will have always with you so you will never get lost, right? Everything about the world that was kind of wild and unconstrained and sometimes very difficult becomes much more ordered, controlled, rational. 
So how do we seek out this less controlled thing? Uh, you know, I'm not sure we can always do it with and in our technology. I think what our technology is telling us as we pay attention to this dynamic is that we may need to seek these sort of Dionysian things outside of the technological world. And that's where this return to the physical, to walking like Nietzsche did, playing a musical instrument, board gaming, going to religious services, going to rock concerts, right? Going to yoga classes. These are the sorts of things that immerse us in present physical experiences. They get us out of our minds, which often lean to the past and the future. They keep us in the present and they give us a moment and an experience and something physical and tangible. So if you can experience that using your physical devices as aids, more power to you. But I think they often push us to the kind of life where we feel most comfortable when we're fully in control. And we're often, you know, in that controlled state, we're often thinking about things we did in the past or worrying about things we're going to do in the future. And Nietzsche calls us to break out of that. Well, and I think we, I feel like we, we think we want to control everything, but once we get it, we actually realize this doesn't actually make us happy. And it made me think, I think there's a Twilight Zone episode that really captures this. <laughs> it's uh, the one, a nice place to visit where the gambler dies and he goes to what is he thinks is heaven. And like he's winning every, you know, craft games he plays, roulette. Uh, he's got all these nice clothes. For, at first he thinks it's great. Then after a while, he's like, this, this stinks. And then he realizes he's not in heaven. He's in hell. And he'll have to do this. He'll just mm-hmm. have to win every, his, his life's going to be great for forever. And it just, he, it made him miserable. And, but what's funny is like, he asked like, well, or like this, his guide was like, well, we can make you lose sometimes if you want, if that'll make you happy. And he's like, no, like, I know that, like, I know that I'd be losing on purpose. Like you guys would be in control of that. So it's not the same. And I, I've heard this discussion about, control and lack of control being discussed with the metaverse. Mm-hmm. Like this idea is like, well, can, if we want to kind of make it fun, we have to make it unpredictable make it p- feel like people don't have control. But it's like, wait, well, if, if people know you are kind of injecting chaos on purpose, then it's not the same. Like it, it philosophically, it doesn't, it doesn't have that same effect of knowing that it's completely random and out of your hands. Cause you know that someone is actually controlling the uncontrollability. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's just a different layer of control. Right. Right. And and it gets to the question of do we ultimately want that kind of control? That's what technology's always promised us, right? We control over the weather. Bridges give us control over, you know, crossing rivers. On and on. Technology always helps us control these forces that have dominated human life for millennia. But I, I, it does seem like we're coming to a place where we are in such control of our lives that sometimes we look around and say, you know, maybe I don't actually know what the best thing is. For me. And this is where testing yourself against the world and striving in it, you know, in all its unpredictability and sometimes frustration and sometimes futility may ultimately be more rewarding than having the kind of lifestyle where you're talking about where someone is just totally in control of everything they do. The unpredictability has been sanded off. Life is is very safe. It's very easy, but it's also fairly predictable. You know, I'm not sure I want to live in a world in which I know and control everything that's going to happen to me. 
No, I don't either. I don't either. And I, I think we said throughout this conversation, you're not against technology. I wouldn't say Nietzsche was against technology. In fact, he used one of the first typewriters ever invented. It was like this ball thing with like keys on top of the ball. It was really weird. And he actually, he actually noted that the typewriter changed his writing style. It made it a little more punchy, which I think is interesting. So how do we figure out what role tech will have in our life without turning us into these sort of blinking potato head <laughs> last men? Right. Well, I don't think we can go back. And I'm not, I'm certainly not calling for us to go back. I don't see very many people who are, even as they're identifying these problems. You know, Nietzsche himself has a great quote where he says, We are faltering, but we must not let it make us afraid and perhaps surrender the new things we've gained. Moreover, we cannot return to the old. We've burned our boats. All that remains for us is to be brave. Let happen what may. Let us only go forward. And I think that's the situation we're in. I wouldn't give up. The the very useful ease, control, comfort that technology has brought to human life. I mean, you have only to look at places in the world that completely lack those things and, and desire them greatly to think the goal here is not getting rid of all that. But it is to find a way to move forward that works works with human life, that's helping us serve life. I think Nietzsche's answer to that is going back to those Nietzschean goals that help us find and create meaning, that help us advance the frontiers of what it means to be human, even in small ways in our own lives, in our own communities, right? This cannot mean that everybody is the world's greatest artist or a great statesperson or whatever. These can be very small things, but what's always involved is forward movement. And I think if we look at our lives and we say, is technology serving as a distraction, as a time filler, as a source of information overload, as something that keeps us apart from the physical world, then insofar as it does that, there are problems. But we can also say, is it or could it be an enabler of creative struggle, of self-overcoming, of connection with the world, of enforcing the limits that, that actually help us to live? And I think it can be. There are ways to do that with technology, but they require intention. And this is why I don't think some of the discussions around these issues, I think, are a little simplistic. And what you end up with are what I call in the book tech tips, you know, things like just put your phone in a basket when you come in the room or, you know, only two hours of screen time per day. But with, And these, these kind of tips are often divorced from thinking about what do I really need out of life and what's the best way to get there? Because I think there are situations in which you need more technology to do certain things. So I think if we keep the goals in mind that when we have time and space to reflect on our lives, we think this feels meaningful to me and I'm going to take a shot at it. And then I'm going to see what the next step is from there. That's going to be better for us than retreating from that difficult responsibility and letting these tech companies and their services kind of overwhelm our attention, take it captive, fill it. And eventually we find that our lives have been reduced to touching or watching screens of glass. And I think we're going to find that that's not ultimately the best thing for us or for the world. For me, like the heuristic is, it's not a tip, but it's sort of a, a guiding principle. When I know I have a healthy relationship with a 
technology is is if it encourages me to to be creative, to get out in the real world and do things. I think it's great, you know, if people watch YouTube, they watch some guy, you know, building like a I don't know, like doing survival skills on YouTube. Yeah. It doesn't just stop there, but they actually go out and start trying to do this that stuff themselves. Like I think that's a great example of technology being life affirming and encouraging creativity. The same goes for like different digital communication apps, whether it's Facebook or Discord or whatever, whatever you want to use. I feel like if as long as it encourages people to get together and do this stuff, like do things in person, then that's healthy. Like I, I think it's that, that can be a really great way to incorporate technology in your life. Right. And for as much as we hear negatively about sites like YouTube and the way that the algorithms might push people toward extremist content, et cetera, I agree 100% with what you said. I mean, YouTube is one of the best sites out there for learning new sort of physical skills. I mean, I've used it to do all sorts of things involving construction. I learned how to fix bike brakes for my kids' bikes. I mean, I have learned a bajillion things from YouTube that would be very hard to demonstrate just through a book and have pushed me back into the physical world with new skills and that were very satisfying to use and to execute and that seeing somebody do them was hugely beneficial for. So I absolutely agree that if we take control as much as we can of this technology, if we're mindful about what we're trying to do, these things can be powerful enablers of the kinds of things we've been talking about. And that it's, you know, moving forward in this way is is not necessarily some kind of total retreat from technology. Well, Nate, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Um, So I work for Ars Technica. We're a Condé Nast publication that writes about science and technology, so they can see my work there. Or the book is called In Emergency Break Glass, and you can get it at any fine bookseller. Fantastic. Well, Nate Anderson, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. My guest today was Nate Anderson. He's the author of the book, In Emergency Break Glass, What Nietzsche Can Teach Us About Joyful Living in a Tech-Saturated World. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash breakglass. We can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles and others about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLYS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android and iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you on a listening podcast, but put what you've heard into action.